0: We'd like to thank LawPay for their support of this show. LawPay's online payment solution was developed specifically for lawyers to correctly separate earned and unearned fees so you can accept credit cards in compliance with ABA and IOLTA guidelines. A proud member benefit of the State Bar of Texas, LawPay is trusted by more than 50,000 lawyers and integrated with more than 30 practice management solutions. Schedule a demo today at lawpay.com forward slash Texas demo.
1: Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer.
0: Hi, and welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast. If you are listening to this episode from the future, the year is 2019. The issue of equality, including workplace equality, is very much in the national consciousness. Truth be told, as a society, We've been struggling with this issue for decades now. So for those of you in the present and in the future, let's try to understand equality with a sharper lens. Now, look, I could wax eloquent for the next 30 minutes and pontificate, or I could bring in an expert. I want to introduce you to someone I've known for many years. She stands at the forefront of workplace equality law, and she's one of the most dynamic speakers and dynamic people I have met. Suzanne Anderson serves as the Supervisory Trial Attorney for the Dallas District Office of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. I had to practice really hard to be able to say that all in one breath. It's pretty impressive. That's a big title. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission is also known as the EEOC. You might have heard of it. Well, boy, does Suzanne have some stories. Whether you're an employment lawyer, want to be an employment lawyer, or just have an interest in the issues surrounding equality, Suzanne is your point person. Suzanne, welcome. Thanks for being here.
2: Thanks, Rocky. Glad to be here.
0: Absolutely. So, now, look, we need to get a disclaimer out of the way, and full disclosure, Suzanne and I have known each other for many years now. It's, what, like 10 years, Suzanne?
2: Oh, I'm sure, yes.
0: Yes, yeah, indeed. And and I've, I, I've gotten to hear some of your stories over the years that you tell from your vantage point of the EEOC. We'll get to that in a second, but, boy, you guys are in for a treat. Now, Suzanne, tell us for a second, and, and maybe just give us a quick overview for those that are unfamiliar or maybe are just afraid to ask, what exactly is the EEOC and what does it do?
2: Well, the EEOC is an independent federal agency and we're responsible for enforcing um, federal laws that make it illegal to discriminate in the workplace. So that's for employees and applicants. So discrimination like sex discrimination, race discrimination, color, disability discrimination, age discrimination. Those are the types of laws that EEOC enforces.
0: Okay. And and how exactly do you guys go about enforcing it? You know, so if somebody believes that they've been the subject of workplace discrimination, what are the steps at that point?
2: Okay, what, what the employee um, ordinarily should do is first try to complain to their own employer, talk to their own HR person, call a hotline, tell their supervisor. But after that, if they're not getting any results, they should come to the EEOC. You can meet with an investigator here and file a charge of discrimination. You can also set up you know, a charge meeting, an interview with the investigator. You can set that up online if you want, or you can mail it in. EEOC conducts an investigation of the claims that you make. We contact the employer and we gather documents. We interview witnesses. And then EEOC will make a finding. A letter of determination will issue that that'll say that we believe there has been discrimination in response to your claims. Now, sometimes we don't issue a letter of determination. Sometimes we just say well the evidence isn't enough we can't find it so here's your right to sue and the person can go in the federal court and sue themselves
0: okay so in some cases the EEOC will actually take up the the claim would it be fair to say that it's on behalf of the employee or are you really representing a different entity if you're the EEOC taking up the claim
2: right so sometimes the EEOC will actually we'll file suit ourselves. And when we bring a lawsuit, we bring it on behalf of the public, good, and we bring it on behalf of the people who we find have been discriminated against. So sometimes you'll get a charge filed by one person, and once the EEOC conducts its investigation and looks into it, we find, oh God, there are a hundred other people who've been subjected to the same type of discrimination. So sometimes we bring it on behalf of the person who files the charge and a class of people. Sometimes we just bring it on behalf of the person who filed the charge. And before we litigate, we're required by the statute to engage in conciliation, which really is just a settlement discussion. We're supposed to have good faith settlement discussions with the company and with the people who've been harmed and try to resolve the case before we file suit.
0: Does it ever happen that in the course of the investigation, EEOC says, you know not only do we not find evidence of discrimination we actually think the employer did nothing wrong here is that has that ever happened in your in your experience
2: I mean there are times that we find that there's no discrimination i mean if you look at the litigation that EEOC brings we file suit on less than 2% of everything that walks in the door so more often than not the commission is not bringing a lawsuit
0: Okay. And how long have you been with the commission? I guess...
2: Uh, I've been with the EOC 28 and a half years.
0: So so you're the new person in the office.
2: <laughs> yeah, hardly. <laughs> 28 and a half years. Yeah. And
0: and you've been litigating that whole time. You've been a trial attorney that for that entire duration?
2: Right. I've been a trial attorney and then supervisory trial attorney, but I still um, litigate cases now. And I supervise others.
0: So walk us through your through your career path, what brought you here? T- talk to us about, you know, you graduate from law school, and then you work for a while and you get to the EOC. So let's take us through that process.
2: Okay, well, I went to University of Texas in Austin and didn't really fit in with the <laughs> Reagan group. And I didn't really understand why I wasn't the type of law student that the big law firms and the corporations were really looking for. And then I started looking into civil rights, which I had a big interest in anyway. And I went to the Department of Education Office for Civil Rights and worked there for 2 years. Then I left there because I really wanted to be in court and I came to the EEOC because I understood that they, you know, went to trial and they, you know, prosecuted cases.
0: Wow, so this is, technically, this is your second job after law school, is that?
2: Well, it was my second job, and then I had a third job because I left the EOC at some point and went and worked for the city of Dallas for a couple of years because I thought I really needed to, you know, take a look from the other side as a someone working for the city, and I was in their labor and employment section for a couple of years and then came back to EOC.
0: Got it. Okay, so, but but this is... The EEOC has kind of been, for the most part, your home after law school, right? Your your work home.
2: Yes, absolutely.
0: If you could educate us a little bit about the actual statutory scheme that EEOC works under. I know it's Title Seven, but tell us about Title Seven and the related laws and what Title Seven is. Again, there may be people that are too afraid to ask these questions. So I'm gonna be the I'm I'm gonna be that kid in class who, who asks what sounds like dumb questions.
2: Okay, that's all right. Um yes, we enforce Title 7, the Age Discrimination in Employment Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, Equal Pay Act, and the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, uh known as GINA. So, Title 7, they all do pretty much the same thing. They prohibit um discrimination in the, you know, in the workplace. And with, you know, equal pay being involved with pay, um the Americans with Disabilities Act that protects people who are disabled, and calls for things like you know reasonable accommodation of people with a disability, so that disabled people have more opportunity in the workplace. Age Discrimination Act protects people over age forty.
0: Over age forty, yay! Okay, I'm protected. This yeah. is good. This yes, is good. Protected. Okay, mm. finally, my go- I've, I've been I've been waiting for this moment all my life. So that's good. And then there's also an the ADA Amendments Act.
2: Right, which is the ADA um that has been amended. It's, you know, the same basic purpose is to protect people with disabilities in the workplace. It just was amended to make changes in the law.
0: And and I have to I have to confess, I'm not familiar with Gina. Tell us a little bit about Gina. That sounds kind of interesting. Is that is that fairly new or
2: it's Um, Well, let me tell you that of the charges we take in, 0.2% are GINA charges. It's a small part of the law that we do. It's a little complicated. Basically, companies cannot discriminate against you because of genetic information in your background. So a company can't ask you when you apply for a job, they can't say, well, how are your parents doing? Anybody got cancer? You got any history of uh, heart attacks in your family? They can't get to that information and then say, you know, we don't want anybody working here, you know, for example, whose parents had diabetes or who have a family history of some type of you know, medical condition.
0: Wow, you know, I, I thought I was pretty familiar with employment law as a non-employment lawyer, but I'd never heard of this. That's that's kind of interesting. But you said it's only point two percent that comes in. I I'm a little surprised. I I would think it would be higher than that.
2: Well, we just see very few of those cases. In fact, I would have to say I'm I'm hardly an expert on that.
0: Now we've talked a little bit about some of these protected classes, right? There's gender, age. Am I forgetting a few here?
2: Yeah, religion, color, national origin,
0: disability status. Obviously, we talked about that just a few minutes ago. Right now,
2: um, pregnancy. Oh, right. That's part of sex discrimination.
0: Okay, yeah, and I'm sure th- that's got to be a pretty big component of what you guys see is pregnancy discrimination.
2: It is. I mean, we're litigating a case right now where um, a lady was wor- got hired by a dental office, and she worked there for a couple weeks, and then. Came in and told her boss, "Hey, by the way, um, I'm pregnant." And um, <laughs> they told her that they, they wish they had known that ahead of time. Oh boy! Um, and then they fired her.
0: Oh my goodness! Okay.
2: So that's problematic.
0: That's a very diplomatic way of putting that. I, that's that's beyond <laughs> problematic in 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 the employment context of these protected classes. Are you seeing one or more that are kind of dominating the the field in terms of the kinds of cases that are being brought.
2: Well, if we take a look at our statistics nationally, for the last fiscal year, we received about 85,000 total charges, and of those, the biggest percentage were race discrimination cases. Okay. Followed closely by disability.
0: Okay. And I think it's been that way for quite some time now. I think race and race and disability have been kind of the two leaders for for what, maybe ten years or more, or is my my recollection off on that?
2: No, you're right about that. And um, this year, over the last year, we've had we've seen an increase here in the Dallas office, and I think nationwide on um, sex harassment cases as a result of the publicity that came out with the Me Too hashtag, Me Too.
0: With the Me Too movement, as it's
2: yes, movement,
0: yes. So then, this kind of, I guess, at least to me, this begs a pretty interesting question, which is. If Me Too is in the national spotlight, then you would think you would think people would be more careful in their workplaces not to engage in conduct that might elicit a charge of discrimination or a complaint to the EEOC. It sounds like it sounds like maybe the exact opposite is happening. How do you process this? What do you what do you chalk this up to?
2: Well, I mean, I I, I wish that were the case. I mean, we have been seeing um, sex harassment cases all along. You know, all all the years I've worked here, we've seen sex harassment cases. Um, With the new focus on Me Too, I think more people are coming in with better defined complaints. Employees, women particularly, who get sexually harassed, now that they've seen it on TV, if they get a text message from their supervisor that's, you know, inappropriate, they'll hold on to it. If they receive a picture from their boss that is inappropriate. They'll save that. They'll, you know, get on Facebook and they'll, you know, download or save screenshots of things that are harassing to them. So I think the women are coming in, particularly the women are coming in with more defined evidence and better evidence and more defined claims.
0: Okay, so I'm going to try to approach this from a different angle. Please don't get upset with me. I'm just, I'm trying to... I'm trying to understand this, and I think one of the retorts we've heard to this is, hey, there's sexual harassment, and then there's people being hypersensitive. That's the stuff people talk about behind closed doors, and then they don't want to bring it out to the public. But when you get them privately, that's the thing they struggle with. What is the line? When, When does something cross from being jovial or innocent to becoming harassing? Do you think that we've changed the definition of what harassment is? Or are we just now becoming more aware of what harassing conduct is? How do you parse through that from your vantage point?
2: I don't believe it's hypersensitivity. The cases I see and the cases that we litigate are cases that nobody could turn a eye away from. You know, we have a lady who worked for a company. This is a suit we've brought. She worked for a company, and, you know, her manager followed her into the bathroom, came in behind her in the bathroom, and attempted to sexually assault her in the bathroom. It was only after she ran out and told her coworker, hey, hey, you know, come here, help me, that it stopped. Cases like that, you know, <laughs> I don't consider that hypersensitive. We have a case involving a McDonald's in a small town in Texas. Where the guy that was doing I.T. and the guy that was the general manager was coming up behind all of these young women who worked there and reaching around them on the counter, touching them, making comments to them. One of them would give the ladies told us one of them would give the young ladies a hotel key and say, "Come meet me at the hotel later," that type of thing. So these are not you know, there may be people out there who are saying, you know, "Oh, he wouldn't stop commenting about my outfit." and I'm upset. That's out there, sure, but there are also real complaints of sexual harassment that there's just no place for it in the workplace. I think the worst example, one of the worst examples I've seen, this is a case that we went to trial on, and it went to the Fifth Circuit, where the manager, um, it was bring your child to work day, and the manager looked at a, a his secretary's 15-year-old daughter and made a comment about her size of her breasts for being 15. That's just so inappropriate. You can't even imagine. And, you know, the pictures we get in the investigative file, the text we see in the investigative file, it's not like the managers are being misunderstood. It's very easy to understand what they want.
0: I'm surprised that people would would even have the gumption to do this, especially in this day and age. It's—I don't know that you have the answer to what emboldens them this way, but it's—I'm sort of sitting here stunned at just the blatant nature of some of these stories you're telling. It's a, how, I'm, for the first time in my life, I'm left speechless. <laughs> it's,
2: yeah, no, it, it is—it's shocking what you see at the EEOC. I mean, I never would have expected. The number of cases I've seen involving nooses, you know, where nooses are left at a black employee's workstation or on their workbox or on their locker, KKK symbols that people take pictures of, you know, you wouldn't believe it if you didn't have the pictures. But the harassment, both because of race and sex harassment, yeah, it's pretty shocking.
0: I guess maybe then that gives me the answer to the question that was in my head. Or maybe you'll surprise me i I hope you'll surprise me when I ask you this, but you're seeing some of the worst examples of discrimination and harassment and and everything coming across your desk do you think do you think we're getting any better over time as a country, or you know have we stayed the same over the last twenty eight years that you've been doing this regressing getting worse?
2: I mean you know some days I hope we're getting worse, and I mean. Some days I think that the newest generation of workers may be, you know, they may bring us some fresh air. Um, I mean, I have two kids who are millennials, and, you know, millennial kids, there's a lot of crossover in music. They have kids who are their friends who are from racially blended families. I think that, you know, helps. Um, so I'm hoping that the newest group of workers will be be better. The problem is that we keep seeing, um, you know, just a disregard of workers in blue collar jobs or in, you know, lower level jobs where people just really take advantage of having power. I'm not sure that'll ever change because there'll always be the power struggle. The manager will always feel that they have the power over, you know, the hourly worker.
0: Although you would think in this day and age with technology and the ability to record and take pictures, that power balance, at least arguably, is changing. Is it not?
2: I I, <laughs> I think it will. <laughs> I think it will. I really do. Because just describe, for example, just describing a noose, you know, oh, if somebody had a noose, then then the, the manager or the company can say, oh, well, you know, um, that was just a rope tied for some reason, or like I've had a a um, lawyer for a company explain that it wasn't a noose, it was rodeo art.
0: <laughs> I don't mean to make light of it. It's just that's that. That's ridiculous. That that's weird.
2: what that is. That's ridiculous. So you know, uh, having the picture I think really helps a jury to visualize, you know, the difference between rodeo art and a noose. So I, I do think technology will help.
0: Have you actually had to do that in court, like show a picture of a of rodeo art versus a noose and say, look, see the difference?
2: We have absolutely, yes, we have absolutely shown pictures of nooses. And let me tell you, they're not small, you know, the, they're not the picture on the cell phone. They are blown up as big as possible so that it is clear as day to everyone what this is.
0: Wow. Now, th- there's, th- there's another kind of subtopic that kind of comes up in the national discourse and that's the topic of reverse discrimination. You were just talking about how the millennials are coming from blended families and they're they're maybe a bit more, shall we say, enlightened or evolved when it comes to issues regarding race. Do you think at some point we're going to see a serious push towards this topic of reverse discrimination and whether maybe white caucasian workers are being discriminated against because of their backgrounds. Are you seeing these cases? Do you think you're going to see them? How are they being received?
2: Well, I mean, we we don't really call them reverse discrimination, but um we do ha- we consider any case where somebody is being discriminated against because of their, you know, color or national origin, that's discrimination whether they're black or white, you know. So but uh, so I mean, we do see these type of cases all the time. I mean, there are sex harassment cases. For example, we had a sex harassment case involving a pizza company, and the mid-level manager was a woman, and she was harassing the the, the male younger, you know, young man delivery driver. So you know, that could be reverse. I had a case where um, the male we received a complaint from a male bartender. Who said he was not being moved, he was not being allowed to be a bartender at the restaurant because the owners wanted female. And they indicated they wanted 80% female and 20% male bartenders. And they were smart enough to put that in an email, which was um, quite helpful to the EEOC's case. And, you know, so we brought this case on behalf of male bartenders. Because that that was discrimination. You can't set up a quota. You can't put it in an email. Um, You know, that case was was settled and the company agreed to um, change that policy, obviously.
0: Let's talk for a second about small businesses because in the very beginning, you were talking about the HR department and you were saying, look, you know, if you're an employee, you feel like you've been discriminated against, go to your HR department. Small businesses oftentimes don't have HR departments. They just there's an there's an owner, maybe a few people who don't have titles and they're all just kind of working towards the same thing. How do small businesses try to make sure that they maintain an an equal work environment when they may not have the resources to have somebody on hand to tell them what they should and should not do? Have you have you seen that come up? And you know, what what advice would you give to those types of employers?
2: Yes. Um, We have seen that come up. And, you know, most of the laws, if you have 15 or more employees, you're covered by, you know, Title VII. With the Age Discrimination Act, it's 20 employees. So for small employers, really what they should do is when a complaint arises, they should be smart. They shouldn't just, you know push it aside and say, I'm too busy. They shouldn't say, oh, well, that's just Joe. You know, he's a hugger. You just need to ignore him. And that happens all the time. If they receive a complaint or if they recognize that something's going on, if they can put a stop to it right away, if they can seriously address the issue, most of these companies, even the small ones, have a sexual harassment policy or a the EEO policy of some kind, if when you get a complaint or if you see something happening that seems inappropriate, if, you, if the employer can pull out that policy and read it, it will probably give them enough information about what they should do. Because what they should do is they should talk to the person that it's happening to. They should pull the manager in, have the manager read the policy, talk to the manager about why they feel it's inappropriate and tell the manager to stop. And if they do that, you know, the people will, you know, their employees will never come into my door because they will resolve their own problems.
0: And have you heard of cases where they actually do just, they resolve it appropriately, you know, within the confines of their business? Do you know of cases like that?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we get charges of discrimination where the employer writes a position statement and says, hey, you know what? We learned about this on this date We." We contacted the employee, we interviewed the manager, he didn't have a good excuse and we disciplined him or we fired him or we took some type of action. That's how they should resolve their charge. That's so much cheaper, easier and smarter.
0: Do you ever see situations where where you have an employer, say a company that, that actually does care about equality and you, you meet with them, you talk to the people involved and they really do want an equal workplace. But a mistake gets made and they get sued. Have you seen that have you seen that occur and you know maybe and it may not get resolved internally it might go to the courts or the EEOC takes it up. How do you approach those cases where you've got a good employer who just made a mistake in one case?
2: Well, uh, the best way to handle that is, you know, through the statutory requirement of conciliation. So if a company gets a letter of termination from EEOC and they realize, oh, Gosh, we're in trouble you know we we messed up here. They can come to conciliation, meet with the e o c They have to agree to do some type of training usually they have to put in place policies. they may have to pay, and they will probably have to pay the victim some amount for lost wages or you know mental and emotional harm. but it's all a confidential experience it's confidential settlement and before EEOC files suit, you can resolve these issues quietly and to the agreement of everybody. Now, after EEOC files suit, it can't be settled confidentially. EEOC, you know, will issue a press release. We will put it on our webpage. And, you know, it's a public activity brought on behalf of the public. So, you know, for a company that, just, uh, you know, made a mistake. You know, sometimes companies, you know, they grow too fast. And so the the person who's in place of hiring has never been trained, or maybe they just don't know what they're supposed to be doing. And they make, you know, stupid mistakes. That happens. Um, or sometimes mid-level managers who are just um, not not trained enough and don't have enough experience, they make mistakes. A company can resolve those through conciliation and that is what I would recommend they do. Just saying, oh, I'm a good person I mean I hear this all day, every day from employers that say that say, Oh, you know, I'm a good I'm a good guy. You know, I'm a we see positions, I'm a Sunday school teacher. I you know, there's no way that harassment occurred under my watch. Like, oh, okay. Um, you know, it did. So sometimes being a good person, you know, that's not, that's not, that's not the criteria.
0: Now, I have to tell you, one of my, one of my favorite things when I get to hear you speak is, is you telling actual cases. Obviously, you know, to the extent you need to, you will, you will protect names and, and keep things confidential. But I've always enjoyed your war stories. You've got some of the best in the business. So you mind sharing one or two of your favorites maybe some recent ones where you say here's these are employers behaving badly let me tell you what happened you got one or two of those for us
2: I do um <laughs> because that's that's sort what you of do my job <laughs> <laughs> um, we i I think um I mean I have a couple of good examples the really the wor- one of the worst examples is uh, a case I had out in Oklahoma uh, several years ago and the company had four regional managers one was a woman and three were men and the company you know the woman never got felt like she was getting respect she wasn't getting the same clients and that type of thing but you know she worked through it then they had a company picnic and as part of this picnic with the clients there and the families there they put these four regional managers on a stage and blindfold them and said hey we're going to have a banana eating contest on your mark and they have these bananas. They're going to hand to the managers on the It's that Go. When they say go, they take the blindfolds off the three men. And it's just the woman eating the bananas with the blindfold on. People are laughing. She finally gets the joke. It was so humiliating. That to me is just, you know, that's, that's ridiculous. That's such a, you know, such harassment. And, uh, that case settled. Um, quite a bit of money for the young lady
0: was the company's name dunder mifflin because that sounds like an episode i might have seen
2: <laughs> no it doesn't sound like the office but <laughs> but no it was real life yeah um, and um we have another case that that we're suing on right now where um and we bring on behalf of three women who worked there two of them were hispanic and the boss constantly made comments about mexicans and Deadbeats, lazy, and that type of thing. They told her, you know, you're not worth the money you're being paid because you're a Mexican. Wow. And so during the investigation, we asked the company, will you send us, um, you know, as part of our request, will you send us your EEO policy, your harassment policy, any personnel files you have? They sent us their EEO policy, but on the top of it, it said sample policy. And then there was a space for the employer. So it's more likely they got it from Google than their own employee handbook. So I think, you know, sending that into the EEOC is a mistake. We have another case, too, and this happens a lot um, where harassment begins and then it's not stopped and it gets worse and worse. Um, we have two, um, two guys. One was a... a from Syria who is a naturalized citizen and one was from India and they were working, um, you know, out in the oil fields and their, their coworkers kept calling them names and, and harassing them, making fun of them, um, you know, calling them terrorists. um, And the supervisor got in on the joke. And so then he was using the same terms. They were talking on the radio. It just got worse and worse and worse to the point that one of the workers was put up on a crane and couldn't get down. And, you know, he finally came to HR and it's like, I, I'm afraid for my safety, you know? And, um, you know, that is an example of when you have workers out in the field and they're just, you know, nobody's being accountable, even though there's a foreman, even though there's a supervisor, they all feel free you know to do what they want. It gets companies in trouble because the harassment escalates.
0: My goodness. Okay. That's you've always got stories that 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 sort of leave me wanting more and yet also leave me really really afraid. <laughs> wow. I <laughs> know. It's it's both. Yeah. It's uh, wow. Well, you know, Suzanne, we are we are, you know, getting up to that point where we need to or we need to wrap up. I did want to ask you and I, I don't mean to treat you like a stand-up comedian, but where can people come and hear you speak, and how can they get a, get in touch <laughs> with you if they if they're interested in employment law, or they want to know more about the EEOC, or mm-hmm. let's say they they're law students looking at looking at this as a possible career? What's the best way to get a hold of you?
2: Well, um, I'm a public servant, so um, you can contact me by email, suzanne.anderson at eec.gov. Um you can also reach me by phone but it's a little more difficult at uh, 214-253-2740. And if you want to see us in action, we have a uh, age discrimination trial in federal court April 29th. So we will be speaking then.
0: Very much so and you'll have exhibits and everything.
2: <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs>
0: Unfortunately, that is all the time we have. And Suzanne, you've been so generous with your, with your time coming out from your busy schedule. I want to thank you so much for joining us. And, you know, of course, I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you thanks to the generous support of LawPay. So Pay, if you're listening, thank you too. And if you like what you heard today, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, life's a journey, folks. I'm Rocky Deer, signing off for now.
1: If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes.